This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Champs, and welcome to the second installment of the Keeping Carlson Short Shifts crossover mega episode. I don't know what else to call it. We're doing green boys, we're doing red boys, and joining me, not as always, but for tonight, Elon Dubrovsky of the Keeping Carlson podcast. Elon, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great, Ben, just as well as the last time we talked. Yeah, usually I'm used to having Red Bulls for the podcast, but for this episode, we're going to be doing Red Boys. All the players <laughs> on my spreadsheet that really jumped out to me as having much better first halves of the season than second halves, and we're going to try to be detectives today and figure out what happened and what can we expect for next season. So again, you could find that spreadsheet, we mentioned it on the last show, over at keepingcarlson.com slash splits, and you could look at it yourselves. I just sort of broke up all the stats into two halves and uh you know use some conditional formatting made it pretty to see who are the players who jump out that had big differences uh, so how about for this episode let's start at the top of overall points per game a player who overall had an awesome season in jack eichel of of course the buffalo sabers he ended the season with 78 points in 68 games it's a 94 point pace it's a career year in terms of pace for him he did have 82 points last season but he only paced for 87 this year well, overall, it looks like he was on track to beat that, though, if you just look at what he was doing recently, maybe he wasn't going to be on pace to beat that because a big chunk of those points came in the first half of the season. Eichel had 50 points through his first 35 games for an 117-point pace. He was among the league leaders in points, and then he really disappeared. Like, obviously, he was still good. Like, he had a 70-point pace in the second half, but that's a big drop to go from 170. 170- 17-point pace down to a 70-point pace. Only 28 points in 33 games in the second half. Ben, what the heck happened to Jack Eichel? How did he go from being so dominant to being a 70-point guy, like a top 100 maybe points guy after being like top five? Am I crazy or this same exact thing happened to Jack Eichel one year ago, right? Like, I feel like this is just in the Buffalo Sabres DNA at this point to come out trick us all into thinking oh buffalo they're good now they figured it out aka they have a goaltender who's saving above 9 10 percent of the shots and then in the second half that goaltender falters everybody in buffalo gets disappointed jack eichel blames himself and then goes on uh you know a terribly low percentage bender over a full season You know, I think it kind of evens itself out. It's one of those things where he was shooting pretty high to start out the year. And so I I wasn't ready to call him a 
point pace player. And in fact, if you can remember all the way back to what feels like three decades ago, when I was writing the Geek of the Week column for Dauber Hockey, of course, it was actually only about four months ago or two months ago. uh, I wrote a column about Jack Eichel in December talking about his Hart Trophy candidacy and how he was kind of on a bit of a bender at the time. I wasn't really buying into it then. I see him more as a 90-point guy overall. So 90 to 95 points, I can see it. You know, uh, 40 goals, I get it. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of uh, I'm excited to see what he can do with another full season. But just in Buffalo, it seems like they're so disappointed in just how bad the team has been. It seems like that morale really like creeps in in the second half. Like I, I, I don't know anything about that locker room, but it seems like more than any other team, there was all this like morose sentiment. Did, did mm-hmm. you get that on your side too? Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense that they would be sad, but also there's reason for optimism, right? Like, a part of why they're doing so well at first was that Linus Allmark really took them on a run, and obviously that doesn't have that much to do with Eichel, except for maybe the morale, but, you know, Carter Hutton just isn't that great, I guess. Like, Allmark (laughs) is much better. Also, Victor Olofsson got injured. They had a really good thing going in the first half, especially on the power play, and yes, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, the big thing next year is, I guess, once again, we're going to be wondering if Jeff Skinner Skinner is going to play with Eichel or still be on the second line. I guess if you had to bet, it would be Skinner on the second line, right? Even though the season did end with Olafson going to the second line and Skinner playing with Eichel and Reinhardt, though Reinhardt even went. So the lines were getting shifted around because, yeah, they were trying to figure something out. Overall, though, yeah, you look at the numbers, it's the clear changes in variance. Like he went from being a 18.8 shooting percentage player in the first half down to a 10% shooting percentage in the second half. And overall, in his career, Eichel is an 11.5% shooting percentage player so that means that definitely he was overperforming what he normally does and I don't think we have a big reason to think that he's gonna all of a sudden go back now to what he did in a half a season versus what he's done over his whole career so I think that's another reason to think that maybe those high highs of the first half aren't gonna last but also obviously I think those low lows he's not gonna be a 70 point guy I like him to be at least point per game probably even can beat 90 this season he overall did pace for above 90 for his first time in his career and i think that's a good place to expect him to land but yeah uh i guess that was pretty predictable that he was going to fall anyone who sold high hopefully on some episode of keeping carlson we said that you should sell high on eichel (laughs) it's always a scary thing to do when a player is doing really well but that would have obviously been a net gain for you i'm not sure who you could have gotten for him at the time but obviously there's some players that did a lot better than him in the second half uh okay next red player someone who did much better in the first half than the second half i want to go to Colorado. Another superstar, Miko Rantanen, was looking like a huge, huge superstar in the first half of the season because he was just like Eichel, above a point per game. He had 22 points in 17 games. Obviously, he had that injury at one point. That's why we only have 17 games in the first half. But in those games, he was pacing for over 100 points. It was looking like Colorado was unstoppable, that top line with... McKinnon and Landeskog was going gangbusters, but then everyone got injured. But anyways, then Rantanen did come back and play the majority of the second half of the season, though he did again miss some time with injury. But in the 25 games he did play, only 19 points. That's a 62-point pace. So I'm talking about 106 down to a 62-point pace. And he, if I recall correctly, he was still playing with McKinnon for all the time that he was healthy. So what can we try to do to figure out what happened to Rantanen and what kind of player is this guy for next season? Because I don't think people realize how bad he was in that final 25-game stretch that he gave us. 
I do think there was a stretch where he was on like a, a mid six line when he first came back from injury. And I, I think that that depressed his total just a little. Um, but I, I think in general, yeah, it was a disappointing second half. I think the thing with the avalanche is that, you know, as good as Miko Rantanen is, they, they do go, you know, Nathan McKinnon remains the straw that stirs the drink. I saw a lot of theorizing that McKinnon was a little banged up. He had a bit of a cold stretch even before he got hurt at the end of the year that um, that was kind of inexplicable. Like, he just went four or five games really, really cold. And I think Miko Rantanen was a little victim to that. I mean, overall, we see Rantanen go on these ridiculous runs when he's playing with McKinnon, where I remember there was a stat where, like, for the calendar season, like the calendar year, rather, of I think it was 2018, so from January 2018 to December 2018, he was like in the 100 point range. But then, you know, the other halves of the season, he had much lower totals. And I think that's kind of what it is. Like he just he goes on these ridiculous runs where he's one of the best point producers in the league. And then, you know, for the rest of the year, he's still very good, but he just isn't always going to be putting up 95 point plus paces over uh, over like 10, 15 game samples. So yeah, I think that the 85 points that he, you know, the 85 to 90 range is totally reasonable for him. I just, I, I don't buy the, buy the slumps. I just don't buy the high highs. I see. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, one thing that you could definitely look at that jumps out for his first half performance when he was pacing for over 100 points, he had a 21.4 shooting percentage mm-hmm. in his first 17 games. I think that might be the highest number on this spreadsheet. I'm just doing a quick glance, at least around these top guys uh, for the first half. Yeah, that is a huge number, and it fell down to 15.4% in the second half, which is still like a very high number, and I'm, I'm just taking a quick look here to see what his career averages have been, and yeah, it looks like Rantanen's always been around 15 16 Mm -hmm. so he's a high percentage shooter but not like a 20 plus percentage shooter and yeah i guess it just it's concerning to me like to me like this run in the second half tells me that i'm not drafting him in the first round because i want my first round pick to be like a guaranteed stud that's gonna just like obviously no one is a sure guarantee but i just feel like ranson just the fact that you said like oh if mckinnon happens to have a slump then watch Mm -hmm. out for ranson and like i don't want a player like that so obviously ranson is a high-end talent he's going to be very useful to whoever has him in fantasy for long stretches but to me uh that second half really concerns me and i recall there was a stretch like a couple seasons ago when mckinnon was injured and rantanen wasn't as good then so like you're really taking a risk basically when you draft miko rantanen and you're hoping for elite like 90 plus point numbers you're assuming that he's going to get mckinnon the whole time as opposed to some other players when you draft uh jack eichel you're assuming that he's going to be fine doesn't even matter who he's playing with and so yeah rantanen was getting drafted super high this season and i think the second half showed why maybe that was a mistake Totally. I think there are two other key things to mention with Miko Rantanen, and I totally agree with you. He's not a first-round pick. The big reason why I don't think he's a first-round pick is that he just doesn't shoot enough, right? Like, he's never hit 200 shots in a season somehow, despite the fact that he's always, you know, he plays a—he's a a number—sorry— edit point. (laughs) Uh, Besides the fact that he is a top line player. And for the most part, these top line guys always hit 200 shots. So very surprising to see that his shot rate is so low. I guess when you play with a uh, with a player like McKinnon, you kind of get put into the backstrom role in that sense, You're, you're more of a setup man. The other thing I think that's key to mention is that his power play points at 14 on the season, extremely low, I would bet you that that 
bumps up just a tick over next year. So that's why I'm comfortable, even though he was pacing for 80 this year, to say that I, I like him in that 85 to 90 range still. And then I think Nathan McKinnon is a guy who could put up, you know, 115 plus. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, he's obviously not going to be as bad as he was in the second half, and you'd expect the power play to be better. And hopefully just the Avalanche won't have like every single player injured, including <laughs> Rantanen, by the way. He missed all that time at the end and in the middle. So yeah, hopefully they'll be healthy and they'll be able to go on a tear like we expected them to. Okay, another superstar here that I was really surprised to see. I didn't realize, I guess I didn't have him on any of my fantasy teams. Alex Barkov really quieted down in the second half of the season. He was do- doing his Barkov thing in the first half, 37 points in 33 games, was going to break 90 points it looked like if he would have continued for a whole season especially at that pace and then in the second half uh yeah not as good in 33 games so the same number of games only 25 points compared to the 37 in the first half that's only a 62 point pace that's similar to what we got from Ranton in the second half and Barkov seemed to me like such a sure thing we on keeping Carlson I know Brian especially he's loved Barkov forever like he called it from early on that Barkov was going to be a stud uh, but he really disappeared. Like, in fact, if you just take a look at the end of the season, no points in his final six games. That was obviously a big part of the disappointing finish right there. Maybe if you take out those six games, he wouldn't be talked about on this show. So maybe the big question is not like what happened to Barkov in the second half. It's more like what happened in these final six games. And it's funny because I don't think I brought him up on the last episode, but one of the players that's highlighted red on the spreadsheet is Mike Hoffman, who was so much better in the second half. They're on the same team, but Hoffman wasn't playing with Barkov and you would think that's a bad thing, but I guess it was fine for Hoffman. He played with whoever, like I guess he was playing with Chocek sometimes, and sometimes not. Like even Mike Hoffman was sometimes playing with real nobodies. Like he ended the season playing with Haula and Vetrano, but that was actually a much more successful place than to be playing with Huberdo and Dadanov, like Barkov was for most of the year. But yeah, for those, maybe it's just the last six games. So should we just say forget about those last six games and overall Barkov is still set, or did you see anything to be concerned about there? So Barkov would have been at a 76 point pace in that stretch, not counting those final six games. Obviously, you don't want to throw out all of the game, like, you know, one third of the sample. And I I don't really want to to make a point either. But I think what really stands out to me in the splits is that he has 15 power play points in the first 42 games of the season. And then over the, the season's final 24 games, only manages five power play points, still playing the same amount of time on ice. You know, he's still doing everything that you would assume that a superstar does. I think he just got a little bit unlucky on that power play. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that he's playing two and a half minutes or so less time on ice season over season. So that's a bit of a disappointment for Barkov, you know, and that's going to lower the ceiling on any player, no matter who it is. Like Connor McDavid is an amazing superstar, but if he weren't playing, you know, 24, 23 minutes a night, that would lower his ceiling. He just fewer opportunities to put the puck in the net. So I, I, I do really believe in Alexander Barkov. If there's a discount going into next season, I want in on it, but I'm just not buying him at that 96 point pace we saw in 2018-19 I think that he's a much safer bet for closer to 85 to 90 that's the range where I'd peg him yeah well so do you think that Joel Quenville just isn't the type of guy to play a player like Barkov was before this season averaging like 22 minutes per game for the previous two seasons then yeah like you said still a lot 20 minutes but yeah a two minute decrease so that is a good point though obviously he was doing fine in that first half but also I think that was a good point you brought up that if you ride by the power play 
then you're also potentially going to die by the power play. And it got cold. And that's what also killed all the Keith Yandel owners as he totally disappeared. And so, yeah, it's a bit risky to grab someone who you're just hoping that he's going to get a ton of power play points to boost him up. He had 31 power play points last season when the in the rest of his career, he had never even passed 20. He hit 20 this year. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'm with you that probably... Well, no, actually, I'm not with you, though. I just have this hunch that Barkov's going to be a 90-plus point guy next season. And I don't know what happened in the second half, but... Just something tells me that he's a star and he's going to be fine. So is that is that weird? Am I just letting my bias get in my way? No, not at all. Because I like there's no. It's not like I I heard Joel Quenville say there's no way I'm ever going to give uh, Alexander Barkov enough time on ice to hit 90 points. But I just think we we saw a bit of a tightening of those lines. And if I were reading tea leaves, I personally think that he's going to continue in that 20 to 20 and a half minutes a night, just because that's what we saw most recently. But I mean, it wouldn't be shocking if he played 22 plus minutes and hit 100 points like that. That There are worse hills to die on, I will say. Yeah, okay. And so fine, we can let Brian be the tiebreaker if we're not sure. Barkov is an <laughs> interesting one. I'm curious to see what he'll say. So Ben, we're in this episode talking about disappointing players, at least in the second half. Another thing that would be very disappointing is having to wait to see a doctor. And that's what happens to a lot of Americans uh, especially in major cities. Uh, typically, Americans have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. And if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction or hair loss or something like that, you definitely want to get treatment ASAP. And that's why we're very happy to say thank you to our sponsor for this episode. And those are our friends over at Roman. Our friends at Roman, they've spent years building a digital platform that could connect you with a doctor license in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get treatment you need on your schedule. You just grab your phone phone or computer, you complete a free online visit and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. That is quick. That is like the guy who was drafted ahead of the guy we talked about, Jack Eichel. That's Connor McDavid quick, right? And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you could cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with any of these types of conditions, there's a, there's a big list of them. Check them out. GetRoman.com slash Carlson for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Carlson for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Uh, let's go now to a player. Here's a really big drop. So Evgeny Kuznetsov on Washington was pacing for 82 points. He had 32 points in 32 games to start the season. And then what the heck happened? He ended the year with only 20 points in his final 31 games, becoming a 53-point guy. And for a player that like doesn't shoot a ton, like he really became... Uh, anchor on a lot of people's rosters for this second half like it wasn't looking good i recall even at one point he was bumped from the top power play i think that actually happened quite a bit at the end of the season for jacob verana uh at the start of the season kuznetsov was on the top power play so is that maybe the main differentiator just that his deployment got worse he lost some power play time 100 percent. so he gets hurt in the middle of february misses I, I think maybe seven or eight games and then when he comes back Jakob verana just on fire on that top power play unit really stole evgeny kuznetsov's spot on that unit uh we only saw in the last 10 games of the season after kuznetsov returned from injury uh two games or three games rather where he was above 50 percent um so yeah it, it definitely disconcerting to see him not get that time on ice you know essentially he's a he's a glorified 
second liner at that point you know what I mean and and for a guy who doesn't shoot doesn't hit it's really difficult to roster somebody who's not getting prime points opportunity or power play points and also doesn't shoot like I just I can't really think of a a forward who's on the second unit or yeah who's a second liner second power play guy who doesn't shoot a ton who's valuable in fantasy hockey can you uh, I mean, not really off the top of my head, but that's very concerning because Kuznetsov, like I said, he's been a star in the league. He was a point per game guy for the first half of the season. Now it's not even like you're saying that, like he still ended the season with, like I said, 53 point pace in the second half. I guess that's not even super rosterable, but it sounds like you're saying that you think that's the more realistic thing to expect next season. And I guess it's hard to say because we don't know what's going to happen with the deployment. But yeah, all of a sudden, Kuznetsov goes from someone who usually got drafted, let's say, in the top half of drafts. And we do think that there's a good chance he could play with Ovechkin at even strength. He did end the season playing with Ovechkin at even strength and Tom Wilson, though there were stretches for the season where he was playing with Verana and TJ Oshie on the second line with Backstrom playing with Ovechkin. So yeah, a lot of question marks here for Kuznetsov's deployment, which yeah, it makes me think, I mean, I would draft him at some point. I would definitely take a shot on him. But yeah, I'm not going to have super high hopes. I I am not trying to say, and sorry if I gave this impression, that I don't think that he will get time on the top line or time on the top power play. I, I, I think more so it's just that you, after last season, you have to bake in a little bit of that uncertainty with him. Like, you can't just go into it and be like, yeah, of course, he's top line, he's top power play. Like, I'm, I'm getting a 75-point guy who, sure, he doesn't shoot a ton, but he's going to get 30 power play points, no problem. I think Kuznetsov is an incredible player, and I think that he deserves top billing on a team I just don't know that that's going to happen in Washington based on what we saw last year and so it's just difficult to draft him like in the top 10 rounds when you have no guarantee of shots you have no guarantee of peripherals and now you don't even have guarantee of top power play minutes so he just becomes a fringe guy in drafts I'm not saying that you know if he if he went off next year I wouldn't be like who could have seen it coming this amazing talent is doing well but it's just it's disconcerting for sure yeah, and the the crazy thing is, like, so his past three seasons, he's paced for 86 points, 78, and now 68. So he's fallen each time, but he's still, like, this season ended with a 68-point pace, which is someone you would draft pretty high, generally. Uh, so now going into next season, I still feel like people are going to be reaching for him, because you're looking over, you know, if you look at Dom Lushishin's spreadsheet, where he usually takes the last three years' numbers to kind of predict what the projection is going to be gives more weight to the recent season but i have a feeling according to that spreadsheet he's still going to have kuznetsov over 70 points but yeah that's probably not going to take into account the fact that he might be losing that top power play and that would be a big hit so yeah it looks like someone that we're saying the second half might just be more representative of what to expect moving forward or at least something to fear uh how about we go now to the Vancouver Canucks and Brock Besser, of course, ended the year injured. So there wasn't too much to talk about about him at the very end. But before that, he had already started to fall off. Brian and I were talking a lot on the podcast about how Jake Furtanen had taken Besser's spot on the line with Miller and Pedersen. And then, you know, at some point, Besser was injured. We thought he'd come back. He ended up not coming back. It ended up being a lot worse than originally expected. All of a sudden, Tyler Toffoli comes into the picture. And so the Canucks here didn't have to depend on Jake Furtanen or anything like that but again forgetting about what happened after Besser got injured 
The second half of the season, in 22 games, he had only 13 points. That's a 48-point pace. So anyone who was holding Besser for that stretch, again, another anchor, someone who wasn't helping you at all. And compare that to the first half of the season where he had 32 points in 35 games for a 75-point pace. It looked like he and Elias Pettersson and JT Miller were just going to be this amazing line, and he was a, a true superstar. I was expecting Besser to end the season. Like, I don't know. In my opinion, I wasn't seeing any red flags, or I had no concerns about Besser falling off, and then he totally did. He got bumped from that line do you have any sense of what happened there first of all would you explain away the fact that he had this big drop just on losing his spot with the Elias Pettersson line and also like now what do we do for next season because now well I guess we don't know what's gonna happen with Tyler Toffoli of course but either way now all of a sudden I get a little concerned that maybe Besser isn't guaranteed that top line deployment yeah a lot to unpack in Vancouver and you know, we haven't talked a lot about what the effect of the season stoppage will have on the league. We're, we're kind of operating from a position where we assume that the league isn't coming back. And, and so I think that that's, that is my expectation. But many may think that we'll get, you know, whatever it is at the end of the year, a compressed playoff schedule, something like that. I, I have no idea. But my assumption is the season is over. And therefore, the uh, the salary cap will be flat or, you know, something close to it. So I see it being very difficult for Vancouver to retain Tyler Toffoli which would be great news for Brock Besser. But that a lot depends on whether or not Tyler Toffoli comes back to Vancouver. I don't think that Brock Besser losing his spot on the top unit explains everything with him. I actually think the bigger issue was he just went on a ridiculous shooting lull. Uh, Very uncommon for him. Somebody who shot above 12%, you know, the first two full seasons of his career, and then in the back 22 games, as you mentioned, Elon, 6.3%, just could not find the back of the net, went on, I believe it's a 12-game shooting lull before he got injured even so you know just could not find the back of the net whatsoever then he gets injured when he comes back obviously Tyler Toffoli in that spot but also because of that lull he loses his deployment right so I think having a low shooting percentage I think that's something that we'll see bounce back next year and I think that with that he will get good deployment I don't think this is it for the Brock Besser Elias Pettersson connection I think that's something that we'll see in Vancouver for quite a while to come I think that I'm I'm into buying low on Brock Besser if you can get him at a cheap discount in drafts. The one caveat that I'll say, I mean, beyond keeping an eye on what happens with Tyler Toffoli, this is the third year in a row where Brock Besser missed an extended period due to an injury. And I, I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind. You know, the first year there was that awful back injury that just looked terrible. Uh, he got crunched into the into an open gate on the uh, on the bench. But you know, these these are injuries that kind of they tend to stack up. And so I I just have a little bit of concern about him in that way. But I I don't think this is it for him on the top unit in in Vancouver. And I don't think this is it for his fantasy relevance at all. This is a guy who was on pace for forty goals as a rookie, right? The, the Austin Matthews numbers. Right, yeah, and he was on pace to do something similar in the first half of the year before, again, he went cold. So I'm with you. That decrease in shooting percentage probably explains a lot of it. It maybe even explains the demotion as they were trying to get him going or get something going. So Ben, just like our show we did on Tuesday, let's close out with a couple of defensemen. This time, of course, defensemen who started super strong and then ended super weak. And I want to go to Montreal. I think this is another player we could have definitely predicted. Shea Weber started the season so, so well. He had 28 points through 34 games. It's a 68-point pace for Shea Weber. He was having a full-on resurgence, right? He hadn't paced above 50 for the past few seasons, like ever since he got 
got to Montreal. Then all of a sudden, like I said, he was pacing for almost 70. Times were good for him. The halves overall were looking pretty decent. I guess Carey Price was struggling, but that might actually be the new normal. But we're not talking about goalies on this episode. But then Weber, like he... I think he's the worst of all the people that we've talked about on the show in terms of his second half. He went from, again, a 68-point pace down to a 21-point pace for the second half of the season. In 31 games, only four goals, four assists, and eight points. Man, like, what happened? Shay Weber, how do you go from being such a stud for people to totally disappearing offensively? Uh, ben, I don't know even what to say here. I guess the one thing that jumps out to me is IPP. So why don't we start there? Because I feel like that might just explain everything. It's really interesting with Shea Weber because in Montreal, he has not factored into the power play too much at all. But all people talk about when they talk about Shea Weber is how good that shot is and how it's booming from the point on the power play. So it's very interesting to me to see those power play goal totals come down so significantly, but his goal totals still be in the the mid tens, you know, like to have 14, 15 goals over the past two years, both, you know, in injury depleted seasons. Very, very impressive. I think Shea Weber is a very interesting guy in particular because he's a defenseman where you don't look for assists at all with him right you only look at uh you look at goals you look at and you look at peripherals and so he's gonna be a stud for you in those four categories but you're throwing out assists and you're throwing out power play points i feel like with most of the defensemen that you're drafting you don't really get that sort of a guy you don't get a guy who can score you're usually trying to get somebody who can get power play points or assists so i always think that that's very interesting about shea weber he's a guy in a peripherals league you want and then in points leagues he becomes a little bit more difficult to gauge because you're you're kind of preying on that shooting percentage staying above 8%, which is very rare for defensemen. But of course, Elon, you mentioned the IPP, and that is kind of the big thing. Like to see him have that 57% IPP, just absolutely ridiculous. Overall, over the past couple of seasons, he's been somebody who puts up pretty solid IPP though, right? Like he's been a high 50s or even 60% IPP guy. I think that's because his team lets him shoot a ton and then, you know, they're getting rebounds off of those shots. Like Montreal scores a lot of goals as a result of Shea Weber being on the ice and that just isn't common for most defensemen. So I think that the, I think that the second half drought is exaggerated, you know, eight points in 31. That's, that's ridiculous. And potentially, a big part of that could be the fact that he was out with an injury, which people were calling career threatening, right? Like it wasn't, you know, obviously March has been happening for the last 10 years, but before that happened, people were saying that Shea Weber might not play in the NHL again. So it's it's possible that that was hampering him and that caused a little bit of the drop off. I think in general, when you look at his numbers, you see that this year's totals are right in line with the previous season, 45, 47, 50, 44. This 45 to 55 point range is exactly where you're you're looking for points from him. And if you're in a peripheral league, you can bump him up a couple tiers because you know he's going to bring you those excellent back end numbers. 
Right. Okay. So you're saying that in the end, it all averaged out to what we should have expected. His IPP of 57 in the first half was, like you say, uh, it looks really impressive, but actually that's generally what he does. But then in the second half, it fell to 23%. So that's mm-hmm. 23% of the goals that were scored while he was on the ice. Only the 23% are the ones that he got in on with a goal or an assist. And that's not typical. So that's another reason to expect him to bounce back. Also, yeah, 4.9 shooting percentage in the second half compared to a 10% shooting percentage in the first half one seems low one seems high so it probably does just all average out his career shooting percentage is 8.2 so again right in the middle there so i think you've probably nailed it he was getting an especially good amount of luck in the first half and then a bad amount of luck in the second half and at the end of the day next year let's expect 45 points again assuming he's healthy hopefully he is now that he's going to have you know the off season to rest and uh, yeah, if you see him go off like he did at the start of this season again for that 68 point pace in the first half, that might be a good time to sell. And also if he starts slow, well, if he starts slow, I feel like you have to be a little concerned about the injury. But yeah, if he starts high, that would be a good time to maybe let go. I'm with you. One thing that I would say about Shea Weber would be that it is disconcerting to see the Habs sort of move into a a very even split of 1A, 1B. I wouldn't be shocked to see Jeff Petrie take over that top power play unit pretty much, you know, be the 1A guy in Montreal moving forward. Like, Shea Weber didn't even play more than 50% of the power play time. He played 49%. So, I mean, a few a few reasons to be concerned in general. He's not the same guy that you were drafting to be a top 10 defenseman in bangers leagues. He's probably more of a top 25, top 20 to 25 guy. And then when he's on, he's in that 10 to 15 range. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I guess eventually also he is getting older, so the Mm. drop could happen. So maybe, you know, now he's 34 with injury trouble. So actually, maybe that is a reason to expect a drop maybe closer to 40 point pace as opposed to the 45 that he ended up with this year. Uh, Another player that totally fell off a defense and that we expected good things from going into the year, maybe not amazing things, but Drew Doughty, we expect him to be a solid 45 to 50 point guy. And for the first half of the season, he was doing that and even a little more. He had uh, 23 points through 36 games, which is a 52 two-point pace, which is probably what people were hoping for when they drafted Drew Doughty along with the peripherals that he gives. And then he totally disappeared in the second half. Maybe not as bad as Weber, but still only 12 points in his final 31 games. That's only a 32-point pace. Another player that we saw getting dropped in a lot of leagues and for good reason. And now we have to project for next season. I don't see a big reason for LA to be much better. So I don't really know what the upside is for Drew Doughty. Like, I wonder if it was just the fact they lost to Foley at the trade deadline. And, you know, who who is he going to get points with? Like, aside from, of course, Andre Kopitar, this team doesn't have too many exciting players. And so that's what makes me concerned that maybe that 52-point pace at the start of the season was always going to be unsustainable and maybe closer to 40 you know a little higher than he did in the second half but yeah i don't know i'd be worried about dowdy for next year that's for sure i'm with you i just don't see how he can be a 60 point guy on this team he doesn't seem like he's capable of being the offensive stud that he was for a time when he was a bit younger i mean it's only two years removed from him putting up 60 points over 82 games but i just don't see it and i don't see how he's gonna be on a team that can support a 25 power play point season from him so definitely concerned about drew dowdy drafting him as a guy who can fill those back-end cats, but I'm not looking at him as somebody who's going to put up a ton of points for me. 
Yeah, I guess it is fair to say, though, that 32-point pace that he had in the second half of the season, that he did have some bad luck there. Only a 1.7 shooting percentage, just one goal on 59 shots when he had six goals in 82 shots in the first half. So he was shooting a little bit less, but also having a lot worse luck. So that's why I think he could at least get back to being a 40-point guy, which is, you know, valuable Mm -hmm. as a peripheral defenseman in most leagues. But yeah, I think the 50-point paces for Drew Doughty, we might be done with them as he goes into, I guess he'll only be 31 next year so maybe if the situation changes in LA but for now I think there's reasons to be concerned he ended the season with a 43 point pace I'd be happy for him to just match that next season yeah I mean don't get me wrong like I think he and Shea Weber no matter what are going to be draftable next year right like I just I think that you know last year we were looking at him in the range where we were drafting like Thomas Shabbat and I I think that those are two players who have have clearly gone in opposite directions at this point I agree with you for sure. And eventually it has to happen. And there's new blood coming in to take over. We've got our Kale McCars and our Quinn Hughes to take over for the Dowdies and Webbers. I guess not for the peripherals, but definitely (laughs) for the points. Uh, So I guess that's all the time we have because this is a short shift episode. If you want to check out this spreadsheet that we made, uh, keepingcarlson.com slash splits, you can see some other players that we didn't get to that had either strong first halves and bad second halves or the opposite. Uh, A couple other defensemen we didn't get to here, like Chris Letang was a lot better in the first half also jacob truba uh so you know maybe brian and i will get into some of these other guys over the summer we're gonna have a long summer series of course so thanks everyone for listening hope you enjoyed these two short shifts episodes we hope everyone is at home staying safe and we're gonna keep trying our best to provide you with fun distracting content to keep you busy every once in a while we've got a big show coming on sunday where we're going to be interviewing prospect expert cam robinson so until then ben i guess this is your show so why don't you sign us off uh, yes, thank you so much, Elon, for coming to hang out with me for a couple of short shifts this week. It felt so good to get back in the old booth. I look forward to podcasting with you and Brian and Lewis, my normal co-host, again soon. Uh, until then, though, folks, play smart and keep those shifts short. Oh, so there was nothing to do with the stick. There was nothing to do with the stick. <laughs> okay, play smart, everyone. Bye. <laughs>